This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have a special focus on the controversial gang truce in El Salvador. It lowered murder rates, but questions remain. We'll start asking those in a few moments, but first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. President Barack Obama predicted in interviews this week that immigration reform will soon pass in the U.S. Obama said he expects to see reform bills on the floor of the Senate in April. The CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, Javier Palomares, expressed his confidence in the reforms. What I have learned from numerous conversations with national business and political leaders is that it is no longer a question of if immigration reform will pass, but whether, when, and how. The bipartisan group of senators leading the reform, known as the Gang of Eight, now agrees on proposals for border security and pathways to citizenship, The senators are still negotiating a guest worker program, however. Sixteen people face criminal charges for the deadly nightclub fire in Brazil. Brazilian authorities are seeking murder charges against nine people, including two of the club's owners, three business partners, and three band members whose performance sparked the fire at the Kiss nightclub in Santa Maria. The fire killed 241 people in January. The club's lack of safety precautions have raised international concerns for Brazil's ability to host major sporting events, such as the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics. Thousands of Chilean students clashed with riot police in Santiago calling for free and better quality education. Protesters threw rocks and petrol bombs at police who suppressed the students with water cannons and tear gas. Students blamed the government for the clashes, saying authorities changed the agreed protest zone, but the government says its officials only kept the protest within the authorized area. Tensions over the Falkland Islands found their way into cyberspace this week. First Argentine online company Datatech released a scenario for the Counter-Strike computer game depicting residents of the islands as terrorists. The game shows Argentine military forces as liberators for the islands that Argentines call the Malvinas. Datatech says it suffered cyber attacks after the release of the scenario was downloaded by thousands online. Argentina officially asked the United Nations this week to mediate the claims and counterclaims over the islands, which are a British overseas territory located 300 miles from the Argentine coast. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Today in Washington, D.C., as we record this program, a special forum is discussing El Salvador's gang truce. The truce is between two of the largest street gangs in the world, Mara Salvatrucha Trece, known as MS-13, and Mara Barrio Dieciocho, or the 18th Street Gang. These transnational criminal organizations are so large and are operating in so many countries in North and Central America that the term street gang is stretched to its limits, and sometimes they're simply referred to by the Spanish term maras. With roots in both Los Angeles and the U.S. and El Salvador, most of the deadly feud between these gangs was played out in San Salvador and other Salvadoran cities. Those gang murders and their collateral violence 
gave El Salvador the world's second worst murder rate until the Catholic Church brokered the treaty between the groups in March of last year. That treaty cut the murder rate to less than half of what it had been. Let's hear a reflection on the treaty from today's D.C. conference, co-sponsored by the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, and the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Jeff Thale of WOLA addressed the group. At the time of the truce, homicide rates in El Salvador averaged 12 to 13 a day. Today, the average is about five. And that's undoubtedly a huge and and important drop in the crime rate and has real potential uh, for affecting the daily lives of Salvadoran citizens. For our in-depth examination of the truce, we invited Stephen Dudley, the editor of the popular website Insight Crime, and Salvadoran journalist Hector Silva to discuss the issue. Silva is now a fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded discussion. Stephen Dudley, you've done some recent writing on this particular topic. Tell us, is the truce worth it? And has it produced results? Uh, I think whether or not the truce is worth it is is, is going to be, we're going to have to take the long view on that. It's too early to talk about worth it or not worth it. There's a lot of different pieces to this. The immediate result of, the, of, of what essentially was a government-slash-church-brokered agreement between the two major gangs there was a dramatic drop in homicides. Literally overnight after the truce was signed, the homicide rate dropped at a rate that no one expected, um, and and almost half of homicides that were occurring um, even days before were now not occurring. This is this was the most dramatic thing that happened with this, and and up to date, this was back in March of 2012, and to date, what the people who brokered the truce say is that over 2,000 lives have been saved. So this is this is the most dramatic piece of it, but but there are a lot of different layers to this, and 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 I'm sure Hector can speak to these as well. But but one of the biggest ones is what what message are we sending to armed groups? Um, you know the, the the quid pro quo here is still a bit obscure. We don't know exactly what was the trade-off. What did the gang leaders get when they said that they're going to enter into a truce? You know, some people say that it was just that they moved them to better prison conditions and they could see their, you know, their families more often, etc. Um, and others say that it may have gone as far as sort of paying them off in cash and perhaps the continued payments to them. That That is just not known. I mean, that's one of the major elements of this truce is it's just not transparent. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Um, and that's very troubling. And then the other part is just what message are we sending to the gangs that, that essentially you stop killing people and we're going to reward you. That is a very dangerous thing to say to, to an armed group, to any armed group. So various themes for us to explore. But Hector Silver, you are the Salvadoran in the room. Please tell us, um, isn't this a success? 2,000 Salvadoran lives saved, at least maybe other lives saved outside of El Salvador. And... El Salvador no longer on that list of most dangerous countries. That's that's something that you can point to with some pride, no? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that is undeniable. I think that the fact that we have uh, dramatically less killings since this truce began is is important, um, uh, and I, I agree with that. I I think that whether you uh, agree with that with the fact that there was something something really obscure. Uh, when this whole thing started, 
for now, the, the, the main and first result of this is that, yes, the, the, the killings have dropped uh, some substantially. Uh, the government is saying 40% at least. There are some doubts about the, 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 that figure. The critics of the, of the gang, I- including the former director of the coroner's office in El Salvador, uh, s- are saying that that is not true and that, uh, that the number is, is really not that, that uh, impressive. Uh, United States officials who have been really critical about this truce have been privately saying in San Salvador that they don't uh, consider the, the drop in homicide figures to be so uh, as sharp as the government is saying. Then again, uh, uh, yes, to answer your question, yes, it's an important thing that happened. You know, uh, as a Salvadoran, if you look at it and say, well, now we have 2,000, 1,500 less people killed in, in, in our country, that's good. That's good. But then immediately comes the question about sustainability of the truce. And now we're experiencing, uh, I think, a new uh, we're, we're experiencing, experiencing a new trend regarding the, the numbers. Since the, the truce started uh, a year ago, we had just witnessed uh, a descent on the on the on the figures. Now, as I understand, for the first time in February, we experienced the first increase. Not we're not back into the pre-truce numbers, but now we're we're experiencing an increase. And if you read at the at the media uh, uh, or you 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 consume media uh, in El Salvador, you're seeing that the perception is uh, now that something's not quite right now because you're seeing and you're uh, kind of uh, reading more about violence again. And and then again, you don't know what is really true, true or not, because what uh, Steve pointed out at the beginning is really important, and that is the obscurity that was around the whole thing from the beginning. And then again, we don't even know uh, for certain if the Catholic Church was the broker here. Nonetheless, so so what you're telling us is that the government may have engineered this and made it look like the church. Actually, that's my that's what I believe. Yes, that's what I think. Uh, well, because, you know, the officials, the minister, when pushed by uh, the journalists uh, at El Faro, who, who is the, the electronic newspaper that broke the, the whole thing at, uh, in the beginning, he, he, he ended accepting his role in this. He ended saying, yes, I was the one that contacted the mediators for this. And I think that there was a chance here. But it, it is curious that even after the minister accepted this, the president hasn't been clear about what the government's role has been in this. So this goes back to Stephen's point about quid pro quo and the whole idea of if the government really initiated this, it's different than if the church negotiated it and started it out of the sort of spiritual idea of trying to lessen killing. That changes the perspective of, of this entire truce, does yes. it not? Yes, of course. And, and uh, I mean, yes, because... Uh, if if the, if the government was the 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 first broker here, which I believe it, they, the government was the actually the one that facilitated this. Uh, what you're saying to the gangs is, okay, listen, we can you know overstep the law a little bit in order to get some things done for you to proceed with this, you know. And there's a lot of speculation on what the government really agreed upon doing for them to to execute the truce. At least we know now that the government overstepped the law when changing these guys, uh, transferred, transferring them from the maximum security prison 
without a criminal counsel ruling it. So the Salvador law says that uh, if you're going to move uh, an, an intern uh, from one jail to the other, you need uh, uh, what's called a criminal counsel uh, within the judiciary to est establish so. That didn't happen, you know. And, well, it could be a minor thing. I don't think it is. But, you know, somewhat this, the Salvadoran state overstepped the law in order to do that. Then again, the government officials would say, well, it's, it was for the greater good. Was it? I mean, what's the limit for this? What's next? You know, and it's always you're always there in, in very, very muddy and, and dangerous territory. I don't know what. So, Stephen, um, back to your point about quid pro quo. Does this then not also cast into doubt maybe the government as an objective arbiter of the statistics and what we're hearing about the success if the government truly was the origin of this entire truce rather than the Catholic Church? Look, I think the question of statistics is always going to be there. I, I don't think that there's going to be an easy resolution to that. There are always going to be people who claim that, you know, the numbers are higher or lower, you know, that they're disappeared and not disappeared. I think the general consensus now is that the statistics are pretty close to the reality um, until we reach a different point where people are saying that they are incredibly skewed and we have lots of information to show that they're incredibly skewed. I think we should take the government and there are two entities that cover the statistics, both the police and the forensics medicines people. You know, we should take them at their word. They're, they're pretty close and let's say that let's say it's in the range of 35, 40 percent, significant enough for us to take a step back and say, wow, what has happened? And this is, this is important. What has happened? And that's the big question right now that we have to ask ourselves because the, the, talking to gangs is different from sitting down and talking to uh, someone who purports to be a political actor in a country. This is, this is an actor that has never sat, that has never sort of created a political platform for itself or designated itself as, 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 uh, as having a, a goal such as uh, removing the state or uh, becoming a part of a, a political party or anything like that. But yet now they're, they're in a position where they're, they're having to cast themselves in this way. And what you can see with, from the gang side is them changing their rhetoric, the rhetoric about their past and their rhetoric about their future. The rhetoric about their past all of a sudden is they are victims. They understand that they have victimized others, but that they are also victims. But the question for v Salvadorans, exactly this question for Salvadorans, exactly that victims of whom and 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 how can they look at themselves as victims? They look at themselves as victims of of being from, you know, bad and poor families, victims of capitalism, things of this sort, broader ideas for sure. Now, to cast an entire sort of, you know, gang, um, you know, into this category is is obviously very difficult. Each one of these guys have different stories. But this is this is the what's going on right now there's a push and pull in in society do we pardon these guys do we give them them a break with the return being that we can be ensured that there will be less violence less extortion um, and less gang related violence or gang related activities where i live where i operate where i run my business this is the trade-off that the salvadorans are having to face right now so you're telling me in some ways that the gangs feel that the state is what's responsible for how they ended up. I think that the, the, I think that many gang members blame many different parts of of their lives, including their parents, including the government, including the church. Even I mean the, the, these 
gang members, many of them feel like they've never had a family, so to say, to put it in the simplest, most cliched term, and that the only family that they've had, anything that represented family was represented in the gang. None of this excuses what's happened between many gang members and communities um, um, for many, many years. And one of the very frustrating things, I think, for I, I Salvadorans... Think some people are going to s- feel that, that that's gang me- members looking for an excuse. Absolutely, absolutely. And worse than that is is looking at the next steps. And what the next steps may entail are, are many, many donors uh, from across the world, really, lining up literally to fund programs to reinsert gangs into society. And many people in these very poor neighborhoods are going to feel very slighted and say, this is the guy down the street who's victimized me for years, and now he's getting money from, you know, name whatever donor you want to name. This is this is the part that's coming next and I think could also lead to a lot of rancor in Salvadoran society. Since we're talking about the sins of the state, isn't one of the sins on the table here that some have criticized the Salvadoran state for is the idea of legitimizing the gangs. Yes, yes. Actually, uh, that's a very important point uh, uh, that's been that's been over the, uh, over the table since this whole thing started. But I think it's worth it to go briefly back and, and to understand what the culture around this is and how, you know, Salvadoran people and culture has seen this phenomena uh, since it started uh, back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when uh, gang members started to, uh, being deported to El Salvador from the from the United States cities, uh, where they they were, you know, the gangs were actually born. The, these gang members that were deported uh, went into Salvadoran ta- towns in El Salvador and mixed uh, with the community there. And from the beginning, they started playing uh, the crime uh, playbook. You know, so they were there. They had access to new means of. Uh, surviving by, you know, behaving criminally. And the state response that back then was, you know, to put, uh, put in place this whole iron fist policy, you know, and put the mano dura, de la mano dura and yeah. put all these guys, uh, a lot of these guys in jail. And, uh, where, and, and what, uh, it was in Salvadoran jails where these guys really sophisticated themselves, you know, r- uh, you know, more sophisticated criminal rings as in, you know, uh, putting together uh, small money laundering schemes, a huge extortion network, which is the, something that hasn't been addressed by these truths. And uh, they even got some of them, some of them, not the gangs as a whole, some of them got mixed with uh, narco-traffickers there and, you know, and started working as subcontractors for, for, for them. So, but the, all, the whole rhetoric about the, the victim statue of these guys, well... I can, you know, fairly tell you that that's not that's something that's going to be very hard for Salvadoran people to buy, you know. Hector Silva, we'll, we'll we'll get back to more of these points in a moment. Hector Silva, a fellow at the American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, and also from El Faro in El Salvador, and Stephen Dudley of Inside Crime, our guest today on Latin Pulse. We'll be back for more of this discussion on Salvadoran gangs and the truce in a moment. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. 
Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our guest today, Hector Silva, a fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and a journalist for various organizations in El Salvador, including El Fado, and Stephen Dudley, the editor of the popular website Inside Crime. Stephen, you have done a lot of writing about this very recently. Maybe you could walk us back briefly over how this all started, this truce. Well, I mean, you have to go back a few years, really. I mean, uh, a number of years ago, the gangs, um, uh, the two top gang uh, gangs in El Salvador, much of their leadership was imprisoned. Um, and they have, over the years, they have gotten older. And as they've gotten older, they have gotten, maybe you could say, wiser, maybe sort of more political, politically savvy. But they began to have sort of talks uh, with the government and with members of the church, uh, mostly the Catholic church, uh, and, and talk about maybe we should have a truce. Because these two gangs, the MS-13 and the uh, Barrio 18, the 18th Street gang, have been fighting really uh, for about to, close to 20 years now. So... So, so the notion was maybe we need to have some sort of way in which we can stop this sort of senseless violence. And um, in the most recent uh, itineration of that was uh, came about when um, an ex-guerrilla named uh, Raul Mijango, uh, really at the behest of the security ministry of the Salvadoran government, um, and a bishop who was the, uh, the, who was the military chaplain of, of El Salvador, were brought in to broker the final pieces of this truce between these two um, gangs. And, and the result of that was this, was this very dramatic drop in homicides. Now, to get to that point, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of politically, political maneuvering behind the scenes. Um, and certainly the thought is that, that, that there was, that this is a political truce. In other words, that, 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 that people are trying to sort of uh, take advantage, uh, in particular the security minister, take advantage of the, the possibility of lowering the level of homicides in order to position himself uh, on a political level. And then another issue that has come out with the way that this uh, truce has happened is what role did the church play and why did it play this role? Uh, the, the, the negotiators or the original government side negotiators went to several different members, high-level members of the church, to try to get them to participate in the talks, and they all said no. Um, so there was there was a process whereby they arrived at the military chaplain. It may have ended up being a very good decision to go with the military chaplain for a number of reasons that we don't necessarily have time to go into now. But but the fact of the matter is that there is there still is within the church a lot of trepidation with regards to this truce. What does it mean for the church that the fact that they are sort of giving their their nod of approval uh, to to make a pact with uh, with these uh, with these gangs who have victimized people for years and years and years, and I can't. Uh, overemphasize how much uh, people feel like they have just been absolutely pillaged and literally raped um, for many, many years by these organizations. And then to have the government sort of, you know, come to this agreement to them for a lot of people is very shocking and difficult to accept. So the military and defense, longtime leaders in politics in El Salvador, using the church as a shield here for getting this work done. I don't know if a shield is necessarily uh, the, the right way to describe it, but certainly they needed the, the, the approval of the, of the church. But it's a matter of fact, you know, when, when, when the minister of security who, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear now that he was the mastermind uh, behind the whole thing, uh, was pushed by journalists and, and, and in order to say, well, what was your real role here? He ended, he ended up saying, well, 
it was planned here. It was talked about here in my office. And this guy, the, the, the former guerrilla commander, he, he's my advisor. He's been my advisor sorry, for, 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 for a while now. And, and so it was, it was thought here. And then he, he accepts uh, that he, he needed to, th to think of a way of making this um, a good sell for the Salvadoran people to buy. And, and that's why he uh, went to the Catholic Church. And he explored the number of bishops who, who, who weren't willing to put their names into it. And, and I think that the, the military chaplain was the fourth choice. And it's, it is interesting that now, you know, the, the Catholic uh, church hierarchy uh, is distancing itself from the truth. And, and the, 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 the Archbishop of, of San Salvador has, been, has had an ambiguous saying about this, as, as, as has the president. You know, the president... Sometimes he says, well, you know, we have less, less people killed, which is true. But he hasn't been eager to put his name into it, too. You know, and so to my view, it's clear that it was the state of El Salvador through the security minister, uh, the one that brokered this truce. And which, well, I think one, one thing for starters is for them to take responsibility as they're willing to take, uh, uh, to take the merits of this to take responsibility on the things that might, might go wrong here. You know, I think that's, that's really important because, as, as Steve said, there's a lot of uh, things around. For instance, the most important thing is that besides the killing, which is, you know, the, 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 the major thing, is the extortion culture that hasn't stopped. And that's what's really uh, influencing, in a bad manner, the lives of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans that are still being extorted by the gangs. And since we're talking about extortion, weren't there threats or, or other problems to journalists after they reported critically about this issue in El Salvador? Yes, yes, they were. They were. Uh, well, first of all, keep in mind that uh, when El Faro broke this, this story, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the minister, the ministry and the government, they weren't expecting this to happen. They weren't ready when this happened uh, for, for, for the whole thing to be public. And they didn't know how to react publicly. Um, I think, as Steve said, that uh, the next step is actually for the government to really uh, take responsibility in the second stage and make clear to Salvadoran society what they're willing to do and what this uh, next step, uh, next stage is about. First step for this, I think, is to take the whole thing away from the hands of the security cabinet and hand it to more social oriented cabinet this is not i mean it has a security component but now what you're talking about is rebuilding the social network in el salvador and so more transparency there. and so and the more transparency is needed and aside from that rick i think one important thing now is that if we're going to move ahead with this um and put this in the hands of a more social oriented branch of of, of the executive uh, it's important to understand that the security cabinet has other tasks pending. And the, security, the national security problem in El Salvador has uh, uh, not just to do with the gangs. There's a very important organized crime issue in El Salvador that's been growing for 20 years too, and that has infiltrated the, the Salvadoran state and, and, and the Salvadoran political system. And we're not uh, talking about that. We're not looking into that. And even though that doesn't probably uh, mean that the, 
the kind of violence that's associated to gangs, because we're not Mexico, we don't have the cartels there, but we do have powerful and uh, organizations that are capable of really jeopardizing the, the, the health of our institutions. So I think it's time for us to, to really, you know, uh, get transparent uh, in what has to do with the gang thing and focus also in what's happening in terms of organized crime infiltrating our system. Hector Silva, Salvadoran journalist and fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, and Stephen Dudley, the editor of Inside Crime, our guests today on Latin Pulse. Thank you both gentlemen for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Latin Pulse is now on Mixler, webcasting at 2100 hours GMT on Fridays. That's 1700 hours U.S. Eastern Daylight Time. Our Mixler webcasts include weekend retrospectives. Latin Pulse is also available elsewhere on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. Mm-hmm.